Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. This week we present Ruth Ben-Ghiat, professor of history at New York University, who discusses her concerns regarding the planned September 18th pro-Trump, pro-insurrectionist rally at the U.S. Capitol, and the importance of accountability for those who commit political violence. Justin Wagner of the group Every Town for Gun Safety, who talks about his group's new report titled Armed Assembly, Guns, Demonstrations, and Political Violence in America. And Kristen Breitweiser, 9-11 widow and co-founder of the group September 11 Advocates, who describes a recently declassified FBI report that sheds new light on Saudi Arabian officials' connection with the September 11th hijackers. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. On Brazil's Independence Day, September 7, beleaguered right-wing President Jair Bolsonaro mobilized tens of thousands of his supporters in advance of the 2022 presidential election. Bolsonaro's popularity is sinking amid 580,000 COVID deaths, new corruption investigations initiated by the Supreme Court, and the prospect of facing off against former President Luis Inácio Lula da Silva of the left-wing Workers' Party. There was fear of violence during the protests similar to the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. Bolsonaro echoed Donald Trump's election rhetoric, including predictions of widespread fraud at the polls if electronic voting is permitted. Both Brazil's Congress and Supreme Court have decried his administration's attempt to force voting changes amid rising fear about the intentions of Brazil's military. At the same time, former Trump aide Jason Miller, who now runs a right-wing social media platform, was detained for three hours by Brazilian authorities at an airport after he attended a conservative political action conference. Investigators were interested in Miller's role in online disinformation campaigns targeting Brazil's democratic institutions. A new round of peace talks between Venezuela's president, Nicolas Maduro, and the disorganized opposition began in Mexico City with the goal of finding a resolution to the current political stalemate and economic freefall. The negotiations are backed by Scandinavian mediators and Russia, which is close to Venezuela's powerful military. There's renewed hope for progress since Donald Trump's defeat in the 2020 U.S. election. Trump imposed harsh sanctions against Venezuela and backed opposition leader Juan Guaido's effort to be recognized by the international community as the nation's legitimate head of state. In mid-August, both sides signed a memorandum of understanding leading to a new round of talks. The Economist magazine reports that the goal is to schedule new elections in exchange for the lifting of international economic sanctions. A major test could come in November with regional elections for 23 governors and 355 mayors. Maduro has much to gain from successful talks. The main advantage would be at least a partial lifting of crippling sanctions, which have been progressively applied since 2015. The U.S. has targeted Venezuela's oil industry, access to capital markets, and imposed sanctions against government leaders. 
the economy has little hope of recovery so long as the sanctions remain in place. After a decade of campaigning by climate activists, Harvard University, with a $42 billion endowment, announced it was abandoning investments in fossil fuels. The announcement by Harvard President Lawrence Bacow was a sea change for the nation's wealthiest Ivy League university, which had long resisted calls for divestment from fossil fuel companies. But the new reality of climate disasters across the globe, successful tactics by persistent climate activists on campus, and the emergence of sustainable investments has changed the playing field. Fossil fuel divest Harvard declared victory, stating our movement will be here to make sure that for Harvard, it's only the beginning when it comes to building a more just and stable future. Divestment activists gained notoriety when students stormed the Harvard-Yale game in 2019 and pro-divestment alumni were elected to Harvard's Board of Overseers. Harvard alum Bill McKibben, a founder of the climate action group 350.org and major backer of fossil fuel divestment, observed, Honestly, I never thought Harvard would divest. The fact that they did is a tribute to generations of Harvard students who have never let up and faculty alumni who back them. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. The U.S. just marked the 20th anniversary of the September 11th terrorist attack, the most deadly in our history. At the time, there was widespread fear that the terrorist threat posed by groups like al-Qaeda from outside the country imperiled America's future. Two decades later, however, we're confronting a present and future threat of domestic terrorism linked to one of the nation's two major political parties, the Republicans. Many of the same far-right pro-Trump extremist groups that participated in the deadly January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol that attempted to overturn the 2020 presidential election will gather again at the Capitol on September 18th for another rally they called Justice for J6. Those organizing the protest advocate for the release of the jailed insurrectionists, who they call patriots, heroes, and political prisoners. Although more than 630 participants in the January 6th Capitol riot have been arrested, Donald Trump and the other architects and funders of the January 6th attack have thus far escaped prosecution. Your reporter spoke with Ruth Ben-Ghiat, professor of history at New York University and author of the book Strongmen, From Mussolini to the Present. Here she talks about her concerns about the planned September 18th rally and the importance of accountability for those who commit political violence. It's extremely dangerous, and as somebody who, who studies fascism, historic fascism too, um, you know, the way that fascism started in, in Italy, because it started in Italy before Germany, were, you know, gangs of armed men, this was after World War I, in the countryside, and when we have all of these actions that also were tolerated by militia groups and 
all, and sovereign sheriffs and all of these different forms of extremists, some of whom are part of the law enforcement. And all of this led up to January 6th. And it's very interesting. I, I analyzed because my I have a, the paperback edition of my book is coming out on October 5th, and it has a new epilogue that goes through January 6th. And when you analyze who participated in January 6th, which is relevant for what may happen on September 18th, it it was a real um, microcosm of all of the kinds of extremists who come together around the halo of Trump. And so you had retired and active duty law enforcement and military, you had militia members, you had proud boys and kind of far-right political extremists, and you also had a new group of people who weren't affiliated with any, any known radical groups, but they had become radicalized as individuals. And all of these people are able to have guns. And so the wild card of, of our country right now is this, the you know possession of over 400 million guns in, in private hands. And this makes any kind of gathering extremely dangerous. So this rally, Justice for January 6th, it, it has the potential, I think, of how many times fascists tried in the countryside and before the march on Rome that brought, you know, Mussolini to power. And I feel like they're at the gates and they're banging, right? They breached it on January 6th, but the specter of people assembling again, it really fills me with dread. Professor ben what's your assessment of the congressional investigation thus far into the causes and the ways to prevent a future January 6th insurrection? And I ask you that in the context of many people being concerned that you have 639 people who have been charged with crimes related to January 6th, but none of the architects or the funders of this attack on our democracy are being held to account. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's, very, that's very bad for democracy because the bedrock of democracy is accountability and you know the on the conversely the essence of authoritarianism is getting away with it and donald trump's brand from the start was that he was a man who could get away with things and you know it's typical that none of the uh, gop you know politicians or the architects of the event were anywhere near it physically because they're too smart to be near it bannon wasn't there general flynn wasn't there you know, they know better than to be there. So the big fish, you know, we, we see that they're not being held accountable. And I wouldn't be surprised if there's overlap uh, with funding, and, and including dark money, with January 6th and with this September rally, which is called formally Justice for January 6th. And so the lesson of January 6th for right-wing extremists, and I'm including the GOP and Trump, is that you can get away with this and you can do it again. What is your sense of the most effective form of resistance that can be organized against the rise of the extreme right here in this country, a force, a political force in in the United States that seems to be wanting to invoke white supremacy, authoritarianism, or outright fascism? I think um, mass nonviolent protests uh, which we, we had a, a demonstration of its effectiveness with Black Lives Matter, 
um, in the middle of a pandemic and which also, you know, created a kind of activism that led to Trump's defeat, um, which is very, I want to say to your listeners, it's very unusual that somebody like Trump, who's an open authoritarian who's consolidating his power, is voted out. And that's what we did. That's what Americans did in the middle of a pandemic with voters, you know, repression initiatives. We voted him out in sufficient numbers. So mass nonviolent protest, it has a ripple effect. And so it's always been uh, very effective at the right time against authoritarians. But we also need uh, the Democratic Party to really step up its uh, the level of its messaging. Its uni- it needs to unify its messaging. It needs to take on much more directly what a threat to life, because it's not just a threat to freedom, it's a threat to life, what the Republicans are doing. It's, they're an existential threat at this point. And, and the Democratic Party needs to be much more frank about that. That was Ruth Ben-Ghiat professor of history at New York University, and author of the book Strongmen, From Mussolini to the Present. Learn more about the fascist threat to U.S. democracy by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. On September 18th, right-wing activists will descend on the Capitol in Washington, D.C. for a rally called Justice for J6. The organizing website says people will be demanding justice for political prisoners, meaning the more than 600 individuals who've been charged in the January 6th attack on the U.S. Congress. Prior to the rally, Every Town for Gun Safety has released a first-of-its-kind report quantifying at least 560 armed demonstrations that have taken place across the U.S. since the start of 2020, averaging more than one a day. The report finds that militia groups and militant social movements, like the Proud Boys and Three Percenters, are active in over 54% of all armed demonstrations. 84% of the groups involved in armed demonstrations are right-wing actors, and demonstrations that feature the presence of armed groups and individuals are nearly six times as likely to turn violent or destructive compared to unarmed demonstrations. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhu spoke with Justin Wagner, Every Town for Gun Safety's Director of Investigations, who summarizes the report. Well, sure. I think throughout uh, 2020, you know, Americans saw visuals on the nightly news of, of people protesting with weapons. And at first it was very disturbing, and, and then it almost became commonplace where it didn't make the news anymore. Uh, and and was, we started to look into this phenomena of armed protests, bringing guns to demonstrations, um, we realized there was no um, hard data on it. And so what we did is we partnered with a nonprofit, the Armed Conflict Location and Event Data Project uh, that specializes in cataloging and um, systematizing protest data uh, to build a data set. Uh, and in the 18-month period we studied, which was 2020 and the first half of 2021, uh, we identified 560 instances of armed protests in America. Um, And those were throughout the country. Uh, And we also were able to find that an armed demonstration is a more dangerous demonstration. Uh, Armed demonstrations are more violent and destructive. Uh, That may be intuitive for some of the listeners, uh, but actually the gun lobby and the NRA for years has told people, no, guns make you safer. Uh, Well, when it comes to protest and demonstration activity, um, the presence of a gun increases the probability of violence. 
say a little more, if you can, about this whole issue of people being shocked at first. I just remember seeing people at the Capitol in Michigan, in Lansing, where all these people came armed with guns, and now it's so commonplace, and the laws in some states have become so lax as to hardly have any laws regarding the use of guns or carrying guns, that it's not shocking anymore. And that's shocking to me. Uh, you know, I, I agree with the observation. I, I think you mentioned the, the capital, the, the Michigan capital in Lansing, and state capitals are of particular concerns because they're right, they're bedrocks of democracy. That's where people, regardless of their political views, should be able to go and voice their opinions uh, under the First Amendment to their legislators. Um, and the open carrying of weapons, especially by militia groups, um, in an intimidating manner, really chills First Amendment activity. And so when we're talking about guns and protests, obviously we're talking about public safety and dangers, but we're also talking about protecting First Amendment rights. Uh, and that's why we think, you know, uh, states across the country should take action to, to at the very least, uh, protect state capitals and other public um, locations uh, to ban guns so people can have demonstrations peacefully uh, and, and express those First Amendment views without public safety concerns. Our data showed that open carry states have more instances of armed protests. And so, you know, we, we think one of the findings here is very clear is that states that have permissive open carry find themselves at risk for these types of armed protests um, and for more dangerous outcomes when it comes to those protests. You know, I'd, I'd also mention that the kind of groups that's showing up at these demonstrations, you know, we were able to identify 94 distinct groups at armed demonstrations and about 84% of them were right-wing actors. Uh, groups like the Boogaloo Boys, uh, the Three Percenters, uh, Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, uh, groups that people have seen in the news a lot after January 6th. Uh, but these groups are coming to armed protests all throughout 2020 with guns. So, Justin Wagner, what are the left-wing groups? Have you identified them, the smaller number of groups that come to demonstrations armed? Um, there are some groups on the left, uh, which we detail in the report, but we're talking you know, less than 10 instances over the data period. Uh, it really is an apples to oranges comparison. Um, and if your viewers don't want to take my word for it, um, the FBI itself assesses uh, these type of groups as um, right-wing white supremacist groups uh, as the number one threat uh, to the homeland when it comes to the type of domestic terrorist threats that we face. In our report, we have a, a legend that has the top seven groups that were in attendance. Um, the uh, fifth group was the New Black Panther Party, uh, which listeners should be uh, careful not to conflate with the traditional Black Panther Party throughout history. It started in California that is largely peaceful. Uh, this new Black Panther Party uh, has different political goals and different leadership. Can you just summarize the goals of Every Town for Gun Safety and of this research, what you would like to see happen? Sure. At the very at the very least, we want lawmakers to to protect democracy, so people can can go out and voice their First Amendment rights. Um, we think the easiest way to do that is for states that haven't already uh, is to prevent permitless carry, open carry of guns. Uh, we think that's very clear. That would make people safer, be safer to exercise First Amendment rights. Um, in addition, uh, we hope that you know states and localities protect public places where, you know, democratic speech often happens. So state capitals, public parks, uh, other places of public importance. That was Justin Wagner, Every Town for Gun Safety's Director of Investigations. Find a link to the group's report titled Armed Assembly, Guns, Demonstrations, and Political Violence in America by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. 
Kristen Breitweiser lost her husband, Ron. A money manager working on the 94th floor of the World Trade Center South Tower on September 11th, as one of the Jersey Girls, a group of 9-11 widows, later known as September 11th Advocates, she's tirelessly demanded transparency and answers from the U.S. government that she charges has yet to hold accountable the senior CIA and FBI officials who failed to prevent the attacks, or officials of the Saudi government she believes were complicit in assisting the hijackers. More recently, Breitweiser, a lawyer, and other 9-11 victims' families opposed President Joe Biden's participation in 20th anniversary memorial events unless he declassified government documents that they contend will show Saudi Arabian leaders supported the attacks. Late in the evening on September 11th, Joe Biden issued an executive order declassifying a long-suppressed 2016 FBI report on Saudi Arabia's connections to the 9-11 plot, revealing that Saudi religious officials stationed in the U.S. had more significant connections to two of the hijackers than had been previously known. Your reporter spoke with Kristen Breitweiser, who discusses the contents of this highly redacted FBI report, her ongoing demand for full government transparency, and why she believes both Republican and Democratic presidents have failed to release this material over the past two decades. I want to be clear that the document is still heavily redacted. Uh, Redacted means, you know, blacked out. You know, it's not like we're getting to read the full document to understand what it's really saying and all the nitty-gritty of it. Um, But you're able to sort of read it and kind of, if you know the history of the situation, you can kind of put things together. And um, the litigation team has done that. They were able to, through all of their investigative work, kind of make sense of the document. And, of course, uh, the attorneys have clearance. They'll read the document that we're not able to see. So they'll have a better understanding, you know, while they're in court. But, of course, all of that is secretive. What the document shows to me clearly is that there was a lot of contacts between certain Saudi officials and the hijackers. And that's something that the U.S. government has spent an awful lot of time trying to deny. Whether you want to look at the 28 pages of Congress that President Obama ultimately released at the last few months of his um, administration, or you want to look at these documents, you know, it's quite clear that there were an enormous amount of contacts between the hijackers and the Saudi officials. The hijackers had a support network inside the United States that helped them navigate being in the U.S. They didn't speak very good English. They had no idea what they were doing here. Some of the hijackers were very naive Saudis. And having said that, there were other key hijackers that were known lethal al-Qaeda operatives and killers. All of the hijackers, though, you know, had a support network. And so our quest in the last 20 years has been to try to prove that in court so that we could hold those people, that support network, accountable, because at the end of the day, that is a support network that supported terrorists that killed innocent people on September 11th. So to us, it would seem, you know, a no-brainer that you would want to kind of investigate that support network, find out who all those people were that financially and logistically supported those terrorists, and certainly hold them accountable. For whatever reason, the U.S. government has never been interested in doing that. They never criminally prosecuted any of the people inside the conspiracy of 9-11, the co-conspirators per se, within that support network. It's been left to the families. In our pursuit of that, rather than helping us providing the evidence that they have, 
in their files. The U.S. government has kept it all secret. They've covered it up. President Biden has taken a nice first step. He's given us this one set of documents. He's promised to do a full review so that we can get more documents. And we're hopeful that that will happen. But when you're dealing with the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, they're very wealthy. They're very powerful. They're very influential inside the Beltway. And so they are able to, in my opinion, very often get away with murder. It's a tough fight, and we're trying our best because at the end of the day, we do believe that it's not only in our best interests, but it's in the interests of the entire American public to know the truth and to know who supported the attacks of 9-11 so that we can ensure that the nation is safer and that these people are held accountable and that terrorists are not given free license to just wantonly murder people in broad daylight inside the United States. As our listeners well know, Saudi Arabia is one of the most uh, wealthy and, and powerful nations given their, their fossil fuel wealth. What are the reasons you think U.S. officials all these years have kept this information secret? I think, you, you know, you kind of put it in a nutshell. They're very powerful. They're very influential. They're very wealthy. And they're deeply embedded in Washington. You know, people are afraid of them. And when news stories come out, Journalists are reluctant to do stories on them, and Congress is reluctant to pass legislation to hold them accountable, and the intelligence agencies are reluctant to release evidence that proves their complicity with terrorists. It just goes on and on and on. And again, it's not a Democrat or Republican issue. It's either side of the aisle. And I think some of that centers also not only on just the fact that they're so wealthy, but, you know, the United States has a very large footprint in the kingdom. We have bases there because it's in the Middle East. And so that's part of the reason, like, our government doesn't want to upset the Saudis. And then on top of it, we sell an awful lot of weapons to the Saudis for the Saudis to fight their proxy wars over in the Middle East. And, you know, government contracts make an awful lot of money off those weapons. And then, you know, beyond that, there's a lot of business deals, frankly. Saudis throw money around. And unfortunately, when you're a victim of terrorism, you know, in a pursuit of justice and accountability, when you're up against the other side that's and you're outgunned and outmoneyed, literally, it's it's a pretty hard fight. And it would have been nice for the government to help us. They just haven't. And so we're alone. And it's it's a pretty daunting 20 year odyssey. I'll tell you that. That was Kristen Breitweiser, a 9-11 widow, lawyer, and co-founder of the group, September 11th Advocates. Learn more about the efforts of 9-11 victims' families to uncover the truth about the terrorist plot by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs in streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine 
and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WOOL in Bellows Falls, Vermont, KHOI in Ames, Iowa, KKRN in Round Mountain, California, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.